0: Hey, well, thank you, Zach and Ben, for always doing such a good job for us. Thank you for leading us today uh, uh, in song. Those are good stuff. Uh, he is a way maker, right? Yeah, he, he is a miracle worker, and I'm thankful for a God who uh, certainly uh, certainly is that way uh, for us today. Uh, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter eight. Uh, that's where we will begin today in our text. Uh, if you've seen my shirt, uh, I do need a kidney. And and so this is not a joke. I do need a kidney. uh, uh, For those of you who might not know about me, I've had kidney disease for a long time. Uh, My kidneys hovered in around 32 or 33% for a long time and over about the last six months, they've kind of taken a nosedive. So I'm looking for a way to have a new kidney. (laughs) I need a way maker. (laughs) And uh, uh, you might be the miracle worker uh, by donating your kidney at some point. Uh, And so I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but that is coming for me. I am... uh, I am going to need a kidney transplant at some point, so you can be praying about uh, which one of your kidneys you'd like to give to me, uh, and I will take all takers uh, seriously. We'll talk about all that. If you have questions about that or really want to talk about further what that looks like in being a kidney donor, uh, we can certainly show you what uh, how, to, how to get on the list and how to help help a brother out. Uh, so we, uh, anyway, that's what we'll do. That was, that's my uh, that's my commercial for uh, needing a kidney today. I had this shirt made today. Uh, thank you, Jamie Eldridge. And those dots are not dots. Those are actually little kidneys right there. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That happened in GC. So there's my here's my plug for gospel community. That happened in our gospel community group. This whole saying happened in our gospel community group. We were talking and praying about uh, this very thing, and, and it was just kind of tongue-in-cheek that it came out. She said, you need a shirt to wear that. And I said, if you'll make a shirt, I'll wear it. And so uh, that's what it is. It's actually the reason I married Carol. I checked her blood type, and actually we're a match. <laughs> just kidding. I married her because she's a smoke show. Uh, so... <laughs> All right, anyway, sorry, I'm distracted. I'm distracted up here. <laughs> all right, hey, back to chapter eight. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter eight. Let's get biblical here. Uh, so Genesis chapter eight, we will jump right in, and I'm gonna jump right into the text, and we'll, uh, you can follow along with me on the screen or in your Bibles as you will. Here's what the scripture says. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were there with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep, And the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he, sat, then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. more. In the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the Earth had dried out, pretty specific. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they might swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. Let's pray. God, we need you. Uh, Help us today as we open the scriptures to hear from you, to learn from you. Teach us something from your word today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. And so we saw last week about an account from the flood. Uh, about how chapter seven is uh, God's massive act of decreation. He had created the world. He created all the things in it. And chapter seven was the massive act of uncreating, decreating the earth. And he did it because of the rampant sin of man. Like everybody was sinning. And the scripture says that, specifically that everybody except Noah was sinful and so it, God chose to, to save only Noah and his, and his uh, son, his, Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives, and wipe out everybody else off of the face of the earth. And, and, and so the scripture described what it looked like. He said he made the great expanse that he calls the sky, and he opened up, and he, and he opened up, he said, the floodgates from the earth, and so water came down not only from the sky, but water came up from the earth and flooded the earth and destroyed literally everything in it. As the water came bursting forth, it engulfed all the earth into this watery chaos and destruction. But the reality is this whole story about Noah and the ark and all the things that we've read in these last uh, couple of chapters is really not solely on the flood or really on judgment, but it's really about Noah. This is really a story about Noah and the kind of person that God saves from judgment. That's what really this story is about, for us to see who is saved, who is rescued, who is left over, who who is the one that God saves, the kind of person that God saves from judgment. Remember last week, Noah was saved by what? Yeah, Noah was saved by faith. That's what saved Noah. The scripture says this, the writer of Hebrews uh, uh, makes this crystal clear. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says this, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness that comes by faith. Scripture says that Noah believed God and despite having never seen anything like this before, despite having never seen uh, uh, anything that was to come, despite never having built anything the size of the ark, how long did it take him to build it? Remember that? Yeah, a hundred years to build an ark, despite having never seen anything like that, undertaken anything like that. The scripture says that Noah believed God and righteousness was imputed to him. Now, here's theology 101 for you Imputed, that's a good theological word. What does the word imputed mean? It means to ascribe righteousness to someone by virtue of a similar quality of another. Okay? to ascribe righteousness to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. So whenever the scripture says that the righteousness was imputed to him, it was the righteousness of another that was given to Noah. see that? The same thing happens to us whenever we repent and believe and trust Jesus. The righteousness gets imputed to us. We're not righteous people, but the righteousness of another, Jesus, gets imputed to us uh, we, and so we get all of his righteousness. See that? So we see that same thing in the Older Testament, that, that righteousness was imputed to him. And so Noah's faith and righteousness produced an unbelievable obedience uh, to God. Remember from chapter 7, uh, there were multiple uh, times in the text that the Scripture says Noah did all that God commanded him to do. And what, the script, what James will tell us is that faith produces action. Okay? So our righteousness produces faith, our faith produces righteousness, and righteousness produces action. And so it's not just the things that we do, but our actions and our thoughts and our intentions of our hearts. So let's go back to, you can look back with me in your uh, text, if you will, and let's ramp up into this just a bit so we can see exactly where we were. Go back to, with me, if you will, to 717, and then we'll dive right back into the, the, into the text. I'm not gonna have this on the screen, but you can follow along with me in your Bibles, if you will. Verse 17 Uh, in chapter 7. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore upon the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. "'And all flesh died that moved on the earth, "'birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures "'that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, "'everything on the dry land, "'and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. "'He blotted out every living thing "'that was on the face of the ground, "'man and animals and creeping things "'and birds of the heavens. "'They were blotted out from the earth.'" only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the the earth 150 days and then we get to verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So the scripture says, God remembered Noah. And so this is like the pivoting point in the story in between the chapters of this story about Noah and the ark, the two sides of the flood story. And, and so we, when we see in the scriptures that God remembered someone or uh, God remembered a, a specific person, it's not like God forgot, okay? It's not like God just was, was going along and he happened to be on his desk and he looked down and he's like, oh, Noah, oh yeah, Noah, I've got to get back and get to Noah. It's not like God was like, oh, I'm glad I put that sticky note there. I would have never remembered that Noah was stuck out on the ark with all these animals and I better do something about that. That's not what that means. Uh, But but the Bible gives us things from our perspective. Remember, uh, we talked about that, that sometimes the Bible describes things from our perspective so that we can kind of get an idea of what was going on. So uh, what we will learn though is when God remembers someone, he always acts. Okay? When God remembers somebody, he does something. When, God, when you see that in the text, that, that God remembers, he does something. We'll see later in Genesis that God remembered Abraham, and so God in that saves Lot. We'll see that as we get further into Genesis. And in chapter 30 in Genesis, uh, we'll see that God remembers Rachel. And what happens with Rachel. She has a child. And and, and so we see that God is like uh, giving us a glimpse into what he is doing. And and so one commentator says that God remembering always implies his movement toward the object. Toward the object. It's not just he remembers in general, but he moves specifically towards a person. So the essence of God's remembering rests in his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment or promise something that he promised to do before, and then the scriptures will tell us that God remembers, and then he does something that he promises. So God promised to save Noah and his family and reestablish the earth through Noah and his family. And so not many things are more comforting than a promise kept, wouldn't you agree? I mean, if somebody promises you something, And then they do it. That's one of my love languages. If you tell me that you're going to do something, Carol, and then you do it, then that tells me that you love me. That's just one of my love languages. That goes for anybody. If you tell me you're going to do something and then you do it, I'm like, oh, they love me. They care about me. And that's just one of my love languages. And, And so we see God that always does that. Oh, would you agree with that? Have you seen? I mean, God do that, or, or, or anybody that does that for you? If they tell you they're going to do something for you, that means something to you—that they love and they, they have they have care for your well-being. <clears throat> but not many things are more hurtful than a promise broken. Wow. That's also difficult. Yeah. I'm going to do something for you, and then it never does. And then it never happens. I'm going to I'm going to show up for this, and then you never show up. I'm going to do this for you and then just never do it. That's very hurtful. God is not a God who works that way. If God says he's gonna do something, God does those things. If God promises to do something, God is always going to do the things that he says he is going to do. We worship a God who keeps his promises and that can bring us a sense of great joy in following a God who keeps his promises. But how many times have you searched the scriptures for a promise from God? do you do that often? Searching the scriptures, like name it and claim it. Just kidding. Uh, I mean, many times we'll find ourselves searching for the scriptures for some specific promise for us that we need a word from God. And so the question is this, so if God is a God who keeps his promises, how do we know which promises are for us? If this is true, how do we know when we've got a Bible, which promises are the ones that are specific for us? And so uh, we're gonna take a little sidebar and just talk about this specific topic for a minute. Uh, many times uh, we can look through the scriptures and we'll confuse promises and principles. they are two different things, promises and principles. Here's, what, here's how you can know the differences. Promises are always fulfilled 100% of the time. Principles state general truths. And so we'll see that all throughout the scriptures in many different ways. For example, uh, Jen Wilkin reminds us of this. She said, the book of Proverbs is often mistaken for a book of promises when it's really just a book of principles. So we'll take that sometimes and go, this is a promise specific for me and I'm gonna take it and it will always apply to me. So here's one from it. Proverbs chapter 22, verse six, you know that one? I'll tell you what it is. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so that's a great principle that's in the scripture. But if we take it as a promise, what happens when our child grows up and he's a wayward child? What happens when our child grows up and doesn't follow Jesus? Has God lied? No, it's a principle it's a principle that says this is wise for us to do. This is, this is a, something that is generally true in most circumstances. It's wise to heed these kinds of things, but it's not a guarantee that everyone who is raised with godly instruction will become a follower of Jesus. Some of you know that all too painfully true even right now. Yeah. That you have children in your own family right now that are wayward children, and you would like nothing more than for them to know Jesus and my encouragement for you too is to continue to pray for them. Continue to, to bombard the throne room of heaven to say, God, save my child. God, bring somebody into their life to turn them around. Bring somebody that they'll listen to. Bring somebody that will influence them. Bring somebody around them that, they can, that will tell them about Jesus and they'll begin to believe that this is absolutely true. And so when it comes to principles and promises, here's some ways that we can find ourselves getting in trouble in the scriptures, okay? Okay. One is by doing this, we could ignore the context. It's important to understand context whenever we're reading the scriptures and understanding what is going on. Uh, Sometimes we'll grab a promise or we'll grab a principle, and before we understand even the full context its historical or cultural about what was going on, it might be a promise that was made to a specific person in the Bible or a a promise that was made to a specific group of people in the Bible, but it has no further application than what it talks about in in the scriptures at that time. Or in other in other cases, it might be made that so it, this is the principle that is that is followed, and it is a promise that is to come further into the future. I mean, God promised Abraham life and offspring in Genesis chapter 12. We'll eventually get to this, but that doesn't mean He promises me a house and children. So we can see that God promised Abraham something. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you future. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you all these things, but we can't claim those things specifically for ourselves. You understand? You tracking with me? Because it was specifically made to Abraham. The scripture says, though, that, that we will have an inheritance as followers of Jesus, but it comes through Jesus. It may not be something physical even right now. So we have to be careful that we, if we don't ignore the context. We can also do this one. Sometimes we choose promises selectively. Um, We like to look at those that appeal to our own cases uh, individually. We might quote Exodus 14, 14, like in a crisis situation. Here's what it says. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Okay? So we find that in the scriptures, the Lord will fight for you. You need to only be still. And so what would we typically do with that? Be still. Just be still, right? We think if I don't do anything and I'm just really still, then the Lord's going to fight my battle for me and so I'm going to rest on that promise. Well, the problem with that is that 3 chapters later in Exodus, the scripture Israel was commanded to not to stand still, but to fight her enemies. So which one do you choose? Do you stand still or do you fight your enemies? Which promise do I claim that was intended for Israel? You you tracking with me? We can't selectively pull those things out and go, I'm going to apply this, so I'm just gonna be still and do nothing, or I'm gonna fight in this situation. What that means for us is sometimes we need to stand still and sometimes we need to fight. And so, in that, we need wisdom from that. If we understand the scriptures, or we're reading this in the scriptures, we need to go. God, what is it you want me to do right now? Here, I see that you told Israel to be still, and three chapters later, I, to- I see that you told them to fight. What do you want me to do right now? What is it you would have me to do in this situation? That you would have me uh, to do this thing because the principles that we see aren't necessarily universally applicable, specifically if they're applied to a specific people group. Tracking with me? Yeah. Then we go on to this. Sometimes we use a promise manipulatively. Say manipulatively. I don't think y'all said that very clearly. Say manipulatively. manipulatively. Yeah, sometimes we use it that way. Uh, sometimes we might choose a verse because we want to God to act in a certain way. Now, probably the most manipulated verse in the scripture is from Matthew chapter 18. Ugh. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them also. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna describe this to you. If I want God to do something, come up here. Yep, right here. Come stand right here. Come stand with me. So if I want God to do something, all I need to do is get these two dudes together and agree that we're going to pray about something, and whatever it is we want God to do, well, we have two or three gathered in his name, and he's with us, and he's going to do it, right? Yeah. Many yep. times, that's what we do. We can, all right, and we've, got our, we've got our quorum, and the scripture <laughs> says, right. yeah, we're still here, and so we're going <laughs> to ask God to do something very specific because that's what the scripture says, Right? That's terrible. Go sit down. (laughs) That's not what that means at all. If you know anything about the scriptures, Matthew 18 is about what? Church discipline. discipline. Yeah, Matthew 18 is about church discipline. So when you get two or three together, that is typically not a good thing (laughs) from what happens in the scriptures. We take it to be something good, but what Matthew chapter 18 says, that if a brother has sinned against you, what should you do? do Tell everybody in the church and let them talk about him. And, and degrade him, and then we'll see if he'll change his mind. Is that what the scripture says? No, 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 that's not what it says, but many times that's what we do. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Matthew 18 says, if a brother has sinned against you, you go to that brother, and you tell him what has happened, and if he repents, then it dies right there. Everything's forgiven, and nobody has to know. How many people know about that? Two people. Not the whole church or the neighborhood or the people at school, or the people at your lunch counter. Matthew 18 says, you go to a brother right there and it dies right there. He says, but if it doesn't repent, what should you do? you should go get a couple of other brothers and come back and gang up on the guy. No, you don't gang up, but you bring other, two other brothers to watch what happens. That's what that's about. So I'm gonna go, so this, these two people are again talking about it, and I've got two brothers or sisters that are watching what's happening to go, yeah, I'm gonna pray for this, and I'm gonna hope that reconciliation happens. And the scripture says if you win your brother, it dies right there. How many people know about it then? Yeah, four to five tops know about it. And then that whole situation dies. Scripture says if the, if the brother's still unrepentant, then what do you do? You take it to the church. And you bring it to the church. Basically, you bring it to the elders of your church and go, hey, this, this brother is sinned against me and he is still unrepentant. And the scripture says you bring it to the church and the church comes in. the pastors come to that brother or sister and go, please repent over this. And if, the, and if that happens, then it still dies and that sin is covered and that that should go away at that point. Scripture says if not then you're supposed to treat that brother like an unbeliever because they don't understand what forgiveness is about. Treat them like an unbeliever. They probably don't know Jesus. If they're unwilling to to forgive, they probably don't understand that God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. And then Matthew 18 goes on to say, because where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. And what that means is that God is working in this to bring repentance to someone who has sinned against someone. That's what that whole text is about. But many times, we'll take a promise and manipulate it into something that we want it to do. Sometimes we'll do this. We'll limit a promise to our own understanding. We want to say, hey, this is exactly how this has got to be fulfilled, and I see God fulfilling it in a certain way, and I want it to be fulfilled in my way as as the way that I see him doing it in the Bible. And so many times, we just miss all this whenever we're talking about the promises of God. So how do we know the difference between promises and, and principles or uh, whether it's meant as a general principle or something specific for me? Two things that, uh, uh, that I want to, to, for you to look at. One, do your homework. Be a student of the scriptures. Be a student of the scriptures. Uh, be a student of uh, studying and seeing what the scriptures should say. If it's a a general promise or not a specific promise to us, then don't use it in that way. But study the scriptures, you need to know them. You're people of God. You're people who claim to be Christians. You're people who have been baptized into the church. You've been baptized into the family of God. You should know the scriptures and how to utilize the scriptures, not to manipulate the scriptures, but for your good. And second, do your homework, but do this as well. I mean, check yourself. Check your motives. If it's a, if it's a scripture that, that appeals to you, ask yourself, why does it appeal to me? I mean, what, do you, what kind of security are you looking for? Are you looking for Jesus to guarantee you something or are you looking for something to define your life at a specific instance? Will this grow me in godliness? Will it grow me in humility? Check your motives about why you want certain things to happen. And just remember that the Bible is full of promises for us, promises that we can celebrate. Here's a few that you can celebrate, and you can rest on these promises. He promises to give us wisdom when we ask from James chapter one, verse five. You want wisdom? James says, ask for it. Ask for, that's a promise that God will give you wisdom if you ask for it. The scripture says that he provides a, a, a way out of temptation. First Corinthians chapter 10. You wanna get out of temptation? Don't just grit your teeth and try to do it. The scripture says, ask God to deliver you from temptation. The Bible says that he promises our salvation is secure no matter what. John chapter 10 talks about that. Nobody's gonna snatch us out of his hand once we are followers of Jesus. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. That is a promise that you can stand on. He promises to finish the good work that he begins in us. He promises to come back again. Those are promises that we can stand on. But if you'll notice the things about the promises here, these are general promises that should draw us closer to pointing us to Jesus, to worshiping our King, the one who has saved us and rescued us. Seldom do we find promises in the scripture that are going to go, "Hey, in this very specific and minute circumstance that I'm in, will you fix that for me?" Seldom do we find those type of promises in the scripture. Most of the time, it is pointing us to Jesus and creating us in us godly character. That's the promises that we find in scripture. All right. Tracking with me there? Yeah. Let's get back to the text. So God is a God who keeps his promises. No matter if we get them out of whack, no matter if we use them in really weird ways, God is a God who keeps his promises and God is a God of our circumstances. And in our text today, he is a God specifically in Noah's circumstance. So we're back to verse one. Uh, and, and so now God is acting to bring restoration after the flood. He is acting to bring restoration and recreation to, this, to the world that he's in. Verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Um, and, and so in the next few verses, we're going to see some very specific things that God did on the heels of the flood at this great flood where he's destroyed everything that we'll see the flood subsiding and we'll see that God remembered Noah. And the earth had been flooded for like 150 days. That's like five months that the earth had been flooded. So so think about five months of of this is this is after it started, but this is after it was fully flooded, it had been flooded for five months. Think about being locked in with your wife for five months. Or locked in with your Jake leg of a husband for five months where there's no place to go but somewhere on the ark. Five months. Five months locked in with your kids and their wives. Five months locked in with the world's animals. Five months of stable waste. Come on. Somebody find me a shovel. Five months of your mother-in-law. You can say amen. Five months of seasickness. I mean, I'd, after five months with you, I'd have been ready to give somebody a Judy chop. I mean, <laughs> at that point, I would have been like, get, just get away from me. I'm about to give you one of these. I've had enough of you. but So five months, but the scripture says that God remembered Noah. Then he goes on in verse two and says this, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained. So God closed the heavens. Remember we said that God, where God had separated uh, the waters from the sky and the earth and it had come down and flooded the earth. This, verse two says that the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth, continually at that end the 150 days waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And so again, we're, the scripture sees us of God closing it up and God stopping all of this, and then the, the ark came to rest on the top of the mountain top somewhere near Armenia. Verse 5 says this, uh, that the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And so again, they just sat in the ark for a long time. I mean, they were in their circumstance. Listen, they were in their circumstance for a long time. My goodness, the patience of Noah. We even see more of this uh, that, uh, of Noah's patience in, in the text that goes ahead. Look with me in verse six. He says, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And can you imagine finally getting the window open and getting just some fresh air? Woo! Uh, opening the windows of the ark. And then verse seven, it says, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro, Until the waters were dried up from the earth, and then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited for another seven days, and again sent forth a dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth there was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and he waited another seven. Days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return anymore. So Noah sent out a raven, and finally the raven, after it was out, it did not return. And then he sent out a dove on the journey and waited seven days in the middle of these trips, and and so so the uh, the dove returned and then had an olive leaf in its mouth, and then it didn't return at all. And so when I read this, I think this is really the essence of faith. I mean, this is what faith looks like in action. I mean, first the scripture tells us that Noah was a righteous man. He did everything that God commanded him to do. He trusted God despite the crazy things that God was asking him to do. He was a man of faith and over a hundred year period in building this ark and then floods and kills everything around him. And then he's sitting in the ark with his family for over five months and Noah still continued to trust God in the middle of some not so great circumstances, he was waiting on God to deliver him. You waiting on God to deliver you? Maybe in the middle of some not so great circumstances, are you waiting on God to deliver you? Think about this. In the middle of all this, there's no record of God speaking to Noah in the middle of all this. I mean, the Bible doesn't record anything about God saying, hey, I got you, Noah. I've got a sticky note on my desk. I haven't forgot you. There's, there, there's no record of any of this. There's no record of God saying anything while Noah was on the ark. I mean, wouldn't you want like a word of assurance? I, I mean, wouldn't you want there to be a, a word of encouragement Wouldn't you just desire for something, a word of ongoing direction? Hey, this is the next steps. Yet not a word. Not a word that the scripture records from us. But nonetheless, Noah continued by faith. Noah continued on by faith. And then the voyage continues. Look in verse 13. In the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out and finally, the silence was broken. Look in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, here it is. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you uh, of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply in all the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him and every beast and every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out from families to the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So finally, after all this time, Noah and his family walk off the ark after this traumatic event. They exited the ark. Remember, God had closed the door, so we have to believe that God opened the door. Finally, after God had said, you're safe in here, God said, now it's time to go. There stood Noah and his family. Sunlight finally beaming down on them in this new world, almost like they were Adam 1B, okay? I mean, they're starting it over again. Starting it over And so God delivered Noah and his family. And he did it in his timing. And he did it for his purposes. And he did it ultimately for his good, for God's purposes to be accomplished. And so, what did Noah do? What did Noah do in light of all this happening? Scripture says that he built an altar. And a sacrifice to the Lord. See, what Noah was saying was, God, even after all this that's happened, I still need you. Even after this craziness that has gone on around me and me being holed up in here with this family and all these stinking animals, I need you. God, I trust you. And God, I'm even going to celebrate you. I'm thankful for you delivering us. I'm thankful for you delivering me because it could have just as very easily been me who died in all this. But you chose to deliver me. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with the story of the flood? What do we do with the story of something like this that seems bizarre a few things that I think we take away from this. One, the scripture tells us that Noah believed God. I mean, he trusted God. And the, it, it, again, despite the overwhelming things that were gonna go against him, despite, not against him, but around him, the craziness that was happening around him, that waters were plunging down from the sky and bursting forth from the earth and being surrounded in this ark with all these stinking animals, for 150 days, over five months, Noah believed God. And Noah was saved in through all this. How does the scripture tell us? By faith. Noah was saved by faith in trusting that what God said was true, that what God had told him at one point was still true today, despite whatever was happening around him. Scripture says that we should remember this, that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. God saw Noah where he was. God never took his eyes off of Noah. God knew where the ark was at all times. God knew the circumstances that Noah was in all the time. God remembered Noah. And that in that, God kept his promises. God God told Noah that he was going to deliver him, and he did. He kept his promises, and that we need to know that God delivers his people, sometimes in present and sometimes in future deliveries. He saved Noah and his family in the present, and he was creating this family that was to come, when he told Noah to go off the ark and begin to be fruitful and multiply, and he did it in a specific time for his specific purpose. You know, God does the same kind of thing today. That's where it gets down to you and me. And so I would encourage you, like Noah, believe God. Believe God. Believe God's promises. We we don't do this every week just to get our religious thing on. We come together to worship Jesus. We proclaim this truth from the scriptures. Why do we say this every week? We do it because we forget every week and we all need to be reminded every week that Jesus loves us. Jesus gave his life for us and he calls us into something else and he calls us to believe him, to to continue to believe him. I want you to believe God. I want you to believe the promises that God makes to us. I want you to believe that God has has said that he is gonna give us a hope and a future. He is gonna do that for us in Jesus. Believe God like Noah. Believe God. Sometimes that means for us to believe God, we gotta pick up the book and read it. Know what's in there. Know what God calls us to. Know what God has saved us from and saving us to. It's in there. Believe God. Like Noah, know that we're saved by faith and not by our works. Noah wasn't saved by his works. Noah was saved by faith. The scripture throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament tells us that he was saved by faith. And then what did his faith produce? Works, yeah, it it drove him to do something. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, your faith should generate good works. It should generate you, it should drive you into living for Jesus. It should drive you into sacrificing your life for the sake of people knowing Jesus. It should drive you into loving and caring for one another. That's what the scripture tells us. It, our faith leads us to good works. We're not saved by them, we're saved for them and to them. Be saved by faith, not by works. Like Noah, listen to this, God sees you. God knows you. If you're here and you think, man, God doesn't, know. God doesn't know me. He's too big for me. He's not concerned with me. He doesn't know about my intimate details of my life. God doesn't know the struggles that I'm in the middle of. God doesn't even care about those kind of things. If, do you not believe that if God knows Noah and God preserved Noah in a little bitty tiny ark where everything else was covered up, do you not know that He knows you today? He knows in the middle of your circumstances exactly where you are and the struggles that you wish that were not even around you and that you'd like to ninja star somebody in your life right now. He knows that. And he cares about that. He cares about who you are and the circumstances that you're in. God sees you right now and knows where you are. Like Noah, God keeps his promises to you. He's promised to never leave us and never forsake us. No matter the way you may feel, no matter, no matter how you wish that you had something else going on in your life, no matter if you wish that you were off the ark and then doing something else, and you were never in the situation that you were in, God sees you and knows you, and he keeps his promises to you. Like Noah, God will deliver you today and he'll do it in his timing. He'll do it for his purposes and ultimately for our good and the good of others around us. That's the God we serve. The same God that delivered Noah is the same God that loves us and delivers us today. Believe that, church. Let me pray for us.